I've got this guy who's uh, been a really close friend, nearly, nearly a decade now, a close friend, and he was really, really important to me, particularly when I was going through college and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And um, he's an older man, he's a very wise man, and uh, he's the kind of guy who, who, who can sit really comfortably in silence without it being awkward. And so I get to catch up with this guy fairly regularly, and um, he's a great Christian man who's got a lot of runs on the board, has been through a lot of suffering in his life, and um, carries with him a lot of wisdom. And whenever I catch up with him, I know for a fact that over that 90 minutes, he's not going to initiate any conversation. Apart from, how are you going? How's Renee? How's the kids? There's not going to be any initiation from him. He's going to be waiting for me to speak and waiting for me to ask questions. Slow to speak, quick to listen, and the silences can get very, very awkward. If I haven't done my homework, if I haven't come ready with questions to ask, then it can be awkward. What I've learned over the years is that if I turn up with a lot of questions, what I'll get is a lot of really good answers, well-considered, well-seasoned, with wisdom. And if you don't have someone like that in your life, then I want to encourage you from today to start pursuing someone like that. There are people like that in this church. Someone that you can sit down with and that you can trust that they're going to love you by sharing their wisdom with you. They're going to love you by being honest with you. They're going to love you by being more eager to listen than to speak. And so whenever I get to sit down with this guy, what I know I'm going to get at the end of it is a whole lot of wisdom. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, was a man like that. He was a man that you could sit down with, with a coffee and an hour and a half to burn, a man who would give you wisdom after wisdom after wisdom in every answer he gave. You know that there would be wisdom from God in the answers that he gave you, in the discussion that you had. And this wasn't because he was someone really highly intelligent or someone who was uh, particularly well-versed in the scriptures or someone who was particularly humble or had suffered particularly well or any of those things. It's actually the result of him being gifted with wisdom by God. And the great promise to us as Christians in the book of James, it promises us that if we ask for wisdom, God will give it to us. That's a promise from God. And so that's exactly what Solomon did. I don't know if you remember, this is in 1 Kings. I want to read for you from 1 Kings chapter 3. This is what happened to Solomon. This is after he's just taken over the throne from his father David. He's just a kid. And uh, this is what happened. Verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind 
to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So that's the account of God coming to Solomon, asking him for anything. Solomon asks for wisdom. God gives him wisdom and everything else. And what we've been reading in Ecclesiastes, what we read in Uh, the Proverbs, what we read in the Song of Songs is an accumulation of that wisdom and life experience that God granted Solomon. And you can read about his wisdom and the uh, the way that he discerned difficult situations in the book of 1 Kings. He didn't always go the right way, but neither did David, his father. And yet God was gracious to him and gave him great wisdom. And so what we've got this morning, as we come to chapter 7, we're going to switch lanes a little bit, and Solomon's going to get off that treadmill where he's been preaching week after week after week about the the meaninglessness of life, about the vanity of life. We've been going over and over again about the untrustworthiness of wealth and possessions and love and sex and all of these things that we chase after. And he's going to switch gears a little bit and he's going to start laying out some wisdom for us. He's going to put his, his preacher's hat on. He's referred to the preacher in this. He's going to put that on and he's just going to sit down and, and lead a bit of a small group for us. He's going to gather us around in his living room and tell us a few home truths about life. And so rather than try and get through both chapter 7 and chapter 8, what I want to do is just go through this prologue with you. You'll see it's the the bit that looks a little bit different in the editing of your pages in chapter 7, these Solomonic proverbial wisdom statements. And there's seven here, and I'm going to try and do as many as I can before I run out of time, all right? So I want to dive into it now and start at verse 1. The first half of verse 1 says this. Try and remember each of these statements that I've summarized for you. Honor is better than luxury. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. And if we were Hebrews this morning and we were reading this in the Hebrew, most of us would be chuckling because he he just made a a bit of a pun. He just did a bit of wordplay with us because the word for name and the word for ointment are very similar. So I think name is Shem and ointment is Shemen. So he's saying, like, a good Shem is better than a good Shemen. And everyone would laugh. He just made a Jewish joke, all right? And, 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 and the point is, not just that he wanted to make a pun, but what he's trying to say is that a good name, honour, amongst your people, the people who know you, is, is more important. It's better than luxury. Ointment in Solomon's day was something very luxurious. Even hundreds of years later in Jesus' day, you remember when, when he was anointed with ointment, it was a very costly act. 
Ointment was expensive. They didn't have it in bottles that could be resealed. Once you used it once, it was gone. And so what he's saying is, a good name is better than good stuff. A good name is better than good stuff. And if you just are receiving that and it's kind of not sinking in, just think about it for a moment. How much time do you spend? How much time do you devote? How much of yourself, your passion, your work, your money do you devote to stuff versus honour, versus accruing for yourself, accumulating for yourself a good name among the people that you work with, that you live with? So if you're like me, you live in a culture and you go with the culture when it comes to this and you spend a lot more time thinking, praying and working for stuff than you do for a good name, than for good standing. What Solomon's saying is, look, listen, I've had all the stuff in the world. I've had all the stuff anyone could want. God has blessed me more than anyone before or since. And he's saying, listen, that's all nothing compared to having a good name. All of that is useless if you don't have any honour. It doesn't matter if you have all the stuff you ever dreamed of, if when someone mentions your name, people roll their eyes. If when you walk into the room, people suddenly have somewhere to be. And that's a good word for us to hear this morning because many of us, even Christians, I think, will, in the pursuit of stuff... Sacrifice a good name. Sacrifice a good reputation. Sacrifice doing things the right way for the sake of getting what we want. It can be the same in our families, in our marriages. We can sacrifice having a, a good standing among people, being known for having a good and loving, solid marriage for the sake of getting more stuff. In fact, sometimes we sacrifice our marriage so that we can get more stuff for the person we're married to. That's crazy. That's crazy. So for Solomon, a good reputation will live on forever while your stuff is rotting in the dump. And more than anyone else who's ever lived, we need to hear that this morning. Honour is better than luxury. I wonder what you think of when you think about people who you admire. What is it about them that you admire? If you're here this morning and, and there is a generation older than you, when you look at those people, that, that generation, what is it that you look for that you admire? I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a, just about a one-year-old son, and I tell you what I admire most in the men who are older than me, is seeing a man who is courageous and strong and hardworking, who loves his kids passionately, who is tender with his kids, who gets on the floor and plays with them, who doesn't brush them off but engages them. That's the man that I look for, that I want to emulate. That's a man of honour in my eyes. And I get the privilege of marrying people quite regularly, and I've always looked to the, the, the father of the bride to see if he is a man of honour or not. You can tell within the first few minutes of meeting a father of the bride at a rehearsal for a wedding whether he's a man of honour or not. 
whether he's a man who's invested in his daughter's life or has spent the whole time chasing after stuff, spent the whole time at the office, spent the whole time playing with his mates and his toys. You can tell very quickly. And it's the man who loves and invests in and is tender with his wife and his children that I'm looking to emulate. Listen, everyone look at me. Not the guy with good abs. Not, like, I've never looked at a 50-year-old and said, oh, man, I, I hope I'm in his shape when I'm 50, right? I've never looked at a man who's driving a, a good, fast car and thought, man, I, I, wish, I, wish, I, I hope I can have that car when I'm 50. Never. Who cares? There's going, the time will come when gravity takes over unless you have made some kind of medical intervention and you're not going to look like that anymore. And yet, many of us spend way more time chasing after that than after deep, solid relationships with our wives, our husbands, our children, and our God. So what's going to last? Just do the maths in your head. What's going to last? Do what our culture never does and look beyond the next week or the next year and look to the end of your life. What are they going to write on your tombstone? What are they going to say at your funeral? We had one on Sunday here at the church. Are the eulogies going to be fake ones for the sake of making you look good? Or are they going to be heartfelt, passionate stories told by your children about a mother or a father who loved them dearly and followed Jesus every day? Honour is better than luxury, number one coming from the man who had every luxury you could wish for. Number two, second half of verse one, death is better than birth. Death is better than birth. This one makes less sense when you hear it for the first time. Death is better than birth. Don't know where he's going with this exactly. Maybe he was just having a bit of a down day. But here's what I think he's saying. It's not immediately clear, but in the context, I think he's just following on from that first statement. What he's saying is, to die with honour is better to be, than to be born with potential. When you're born, you've got potential for good and for ill, but if you die with honour, then you die leaving a legacy of honour. So for many of us, we have this view, and it's kind of like this, this kind of reincarnation view that even if I screw up this life, well, at least sometime in my life I'll get another shot, or maybe I'll be able to come back and do a good thing. Ridiculous. You get one life, and God has given you this life to bring him glory. And Solomon says, to die after having brought God glory, after having behaved in an honourable way, is better than being born with all the potential in front of you. So this is what uh, Soren, uh, I think it was Soren Kierkegaard, the the philosopher said that we should something like we should live our lives forward and plan our lives backward. That we should think about where we want to be when we die, what the kind of person we want to be, the, the kind of things that we want to have invested in, the kind of stuff that we want to have accumulated and then reverse engineer our life back to the age that you are now and then live it forward. That's some good advice. That's where Solomon's going with this. And so he says, death is better than birth. The day of death 
better than the day of birth. Here's what I do know for sure. I think that's what Solomon meant. Here's what God means. God agrees with him, and this is how he says it in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, speaking through his servant Paul, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Death is better than birth. To live is Christ, to die is gain. When I'm living this life, while I'm alive, while I've got breath in my lungs, I'm going to live for Christ. That's what Solomon's saying. Honour. I'm going to honour Christ with my life, and if I die, and when I die, it's going to be gain for me. Because to be here is good, and to live in this world is great, and to follow Jesus through this life is an amazing privilege, but when I die, I get everything. Christians believe that birth is a beautiful thing to be celebrated, a gift from God, a blessing to us as parents and to the church. I mean, look at this guy. Blessing. But death is the consummation of all those things. Death is the fulfillment of all of those things. Birth is good, but death is better. Death means restoration. Death means God making, taking everything that we've experienced in life and fulfilling everything that was good. So yes, for the Christian, death is better than life. It was great at the funeral on Sunday to see people come up and to confess and witness and testify to the fact that Terry was a Christian and even though he'd been through terrible things, even though he'd been an armed robber and done jail time and had a hard life and had, a, had parents who had walked away and had like just a whole bunch of stuff go wrong for him, now he was at home with Jesus and therefore everything that was wrong had been made right. His death was better than his birth and his life. That's the great Christian hope. If you want to go the reincarnation way, if you want to go the... the uh, the karma way, there's no guarantee. Your death might be and probably will be, if you're Australian in the 21st century, really bad. Like, you'll probably be a worm if you've ever got drunk or sworn or yelled at someone or done anything wrong. But because God is gracious and not vindictive, for the Christian believer, death is better than life. Let's keep moving. Verse 2, he says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So weeping is better than feasting. Weeping is better than feasting. And here's why. Solomon knows, and you know as well, it's a universal truth, that you learn more in the hard times than you do in the good times. That you, learn, that you learn more, that you grow more, that your faith is strengthened more at the funeral than at the party. Right? You learn more, you grow more, you mature more at the funeral than at the party. Weeping is better. God will teach you more. Charles Spurgeon famously said, that though he had been through great depression in his life, though he had been ailed by many illnesses, though he died very young as a result of those things, he said 
that he suspected God's greatest blessing to humanity was health with the exception of illness. That illness was the greater blessing because what he had learned in his times of hardship was incalculable and what he had learned and how he had grown during the good times, he said, could scarce fit on a penny. A man who came after him who has just as many good quotes as him was C.S. Lewis and he said something in the book The Problem of Pain, which is good for you to read if you're here this morning and you're struggling with suffering or pain. He said this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. I love this. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Solomon knows, and you know, that in our pleasures, in the good times, we are deaf to the important things. We become numb to the things of God. We don't need him. And we don't really care if we're growing. Things are good. The party is on. But the morning after, when you wake up with a hangover, and by that I mean your spouse dies, or you're diagnosed with cancer, or you lose all your money, or your car blows up, or there's just no good coffee in the house, right? In the times of pain and suffering, God speaks to you. God yells at you. God calls for you through the megaphone of pain. Remember the Apostle Paul has this thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he pleads with God three times, please remove it. Maybe it was an illness. Maybe it was someone who was against him. Please take it away, God. Please take away, God. Please take it away, God. And some believe that if you're a Christian, then God will take away every pain, every suffering, every illness. It's simply not true because Paul pleaded with God to do that, and God said no. And why did he say no? He said, this is to keep you from becoming conceited. Because, Paul, you've got great gifts and you've had great spiritual experiences. But to keep you from becoming proud, I'm going to leave that thorn in your flesh. And I want you to know that my power is made perfect in your weakness. So if you're here this morning and you're suffering in any way, whether it's bad coffee to terminal illness, you need to know Yes, God is a God of healing and we will pray for your healing. But the wisdom of God is often to leave us in our suffering so that we would hear him. It's his instrument to rouse us because we are deaf people. We are so often deaf to his teaching. And so he continues in verse 3. To four. We're going to have to move quickly through this, but I want to encourage you to come back and look at these things, all right, in your small groups or in your family worship this week. Come back and look at some of these things. It's really good stuff. Verse seven, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 3 to 4. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So he's, he's taking the, the same thought and expanding it out a little bit. He's broadening it out beyond just suffering, beyond just weeping. And he's talking mainly, I think, here about sin. 
And so he says, sorrow, when it comes to sin, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. So many of us, so many of us live the Christian life constantly coming up against sin that makes us struggle, makes us fall. And so, for so many of us, our response to that, because we know God is gracious and that he'll forgive us and that Christ has already done for, died for us, so many of us gloss over that. So many, many of us ignore that. So many of us entertain ourselves with these things so that our minds will be shifted away from our sin. So many of us laugh off sin that we commit. And someone says, no, sorrow is better than laughter. The only response that you should have when you see your own sin, when Doug leads you in a prayer of confession or when you hear God's word and you get convicted, the only right response is sorrow. Sorrow. Yes, be confident that God loves you and that he will restore you and that Christ has died for you and nothing can separate you from his love. But don't gloss over sin. Don't laugh off sin. We should be sorrowful. If there isn't at least one point during the service each Sunday when you are sorrowful, then we're doing something wrong or you're doing something grievously wrong. A lot of churches avoid this subject these days. There is no confession. There is no talk about sin because they don't want to bring anyone down. They want it to be an uplifting experience. But here's the truth. Yes, the church exists for edification and encouragement. But if it's edification based on a lie, then there is no encouragement. The way that we edify you is by encouraging you to see your sin and then to fall on God's mercy. That's how Christians are encouraged. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. He puts it so well. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to 10, he says, after he's written a letter to them, really rebuking them for their sinfulness, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved at my rebuke, but because you were grieved into repenting. That's the thing. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You want to be one of those people who says at the end of your life, I have no regrets? Most of those people are lying, by the way, just flat out lying and ignoring all of the regrets they really have. But if you want to come to the end of your life, like Solomon's talking about right now, with no regrets, then this is the pathway. Sorrow, grief, sadness, over sin that leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to life without regret. There is a repentance and a grief which is worldly, which is just guilt-laden, which is just, I just want to get this off my chest, so God forgive me. And, and Paul says that's, that's the way to death. But there is a sorrow that Solomon wants us to experience, which is better than laughter which leads us to repentance, which leads us to salvation, which leads us to a kingdom where there is no more weeping, no more crying, no more tears. So you can't have one without the other. i just share with you recently, I've been really struggling with this, just to be honest with you. I've been coming 
up against some habitual sin in my life, stuff that God wants to root out of my heart, and I have, rather than attending to that, being grieved by that, and coming to him in genuine godly repentance, I have just been shifting it aside. Honestly, I'm just being honest with you. I've just been, I've been avoiding it. It's happened, and I've just entertained myself. Sometimes, sometimes with Christian stuff, right? I don't, I'm not going to attend to that sin. I'll read my Bible instead or something like that. It's ridiculous. And I, I tell you, what happens after a while is that our heart is hardened to, to that sin in, in general. Our heart becomes hard to it, and we just don't think about it as sin anymore. And so we never repent. This happens to a lot of people. A lot of pe- reasons people leave the Christian faith or go to churches where they don't teach the Bible is because there's sin in their life. In my experience, most of the time it's sexual sin. They don't want to address it, grieve it, and repent of it, and so they'll go somewhere that doesn't attend to it. And what it does is just harden and calcify in our hearts so that we never will repent. The Bible says this of Esau. Remember it says, Paul says, I think it's in Romans 9, he says that Esau pursued repentance with tears but couldn't find it. I used to think that meant Esau really wanted to know God and God just said no. That's not what it means. Think about the words. He pursued repentance with tears but could not find repentance. Not that he couldn't find God's grace and love and mercy. He couldn't find repentance because he had for so long ignored his sin and, and, just, and just glossed over his sin and laughed at his sin that when he sought repentance, he couldn't find it in his heart. And that will happen to us when we laugh this off instead of attending to it with tears. We just won't be able to find repentance anymore. And it will lead us to hell. Because without repentance, there is no salvation. So Solomon says, weeping, it's better than laughter. Sorrow, sorry, sorrow is better than laughter. Listen, I've got three more. I think I'll just do one more, all right? And this is really, really important. Verse 5 to 6, this, really, like, this just hit me in the middle of the eyes this week. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And so he says, Rebuke is better than praise. Rebuke is better than praise. It is Beg your pardon. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now, there's something really important to hear in that first part of the verse, which will clarify this for you. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. That's really important. Because there are people, and they love to come to churches. There are people who are very free with rebuke, right? Very free with criticism. I'm a pastor. I get to talk to them every week, all right? Very free. But Solomon says, yeah, rebuke is good when it comes from a wise man, from a wise woman. So what is a wise man or a wise woman? Someone who can accept rebuke. 
What is true of people who are highly critical and very free with rebuke, normally they can't take it, which disqualifies them to be a rebuker. Can you see that circle? So by all means, this is just a caveat before we get to the meat, by all means, be a person of rebuke and freely give criticism. I wish we got more criticism, to be honest with you, because I hear the criticism, it's just not coming from your mouth to me. Right? It's gossip, it's church, you know, it's, it's disseminated through conduits and then comes to me. I would love to hear it coming from your mouth. Because what I do when it comes to other people is just close my ears and my eyes. But when it comes from a person who has a personal grievance or a personal rebuke, I love it, or at least I welcome it. But just know that in order to be someone who rebukes, Solomon says you must be a wise man, and that means you must be able to take some rebuke. So that probably means it's going to be a dialogue of rebuke. My best friends in the world right now are men and women who will rebuke me. I don't think I have a good friend who doesn't rebuke me from time to time. And Solomon himself says, God, I am so grateful that you have given me friends who are confident to walk into the throne room and tell me where I'm wrong. That kind of thing can cost you your life in Solomon's day. And yet he has friends, trusted friends, wise friends, who are willing to say, Solomon, there's a problem and you're it. Solomon will write elsewhere in the Proverbs something like um, the rebuke of a friend is better than the kisses of an enemy. You can look it up. I don't know where it is. Proverbs 20-something. The rebuke of a friend is better than the kisses of an enemy. Isn't that the truth? And here he says, uh, where is it? Uh, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. This is what he's saying. Fools will come to you with praise. Fools will come to you with praise, and it's going to be like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Do you know how thorns crackle? They, thorns under a pot on a fire just blow up. It's really, it's, it's really, uh, it's really um, bright, and, and, and it looks really beautiful, and it's really intense, but within seconds it's gone. When I was a kid, we grew up on about 15 acres and we had on our property just acres and acres of blackberry bushes. If you grew up on any kind of property, you know that blackberry bushes are good for about a week of the year where they give you something and you can make jam and the rest of the time they're just a pain in the butt, sometimes very literally if you're an 11-year-old running around in the paddock. And, and they just take up space and make it that it can't be used for um, cows or horses or anything else. And so... It, very regularly we would have someone come with a big thrasher who'd come along and just thrash them all up and bundle them all up and then you'd leave them there for a little while, normally in the summertime, they would dry up and then you'd have a bonfire back in the day when you were allowed to do this um, and you'd just have this huge fire and, and, and what we would do is just pile together a bunch of timber and old logs and trees that had fallen down and then pile on top of it all these blackberry bushes and for the first 15 minutes, it would roar like mental. Like you could see it from the moon. Just go up. 
these dried up blackberry bushes, and then the next two days were where the logs, the hardwood logs would burn and smoulder and go to charcoal. And Solomon says a rebuke is like hardwood. A rebuke from a wise man is something that will be lasting, perhaps eternally valuable, something of worth, whereas the cackling of fools, right, the the easy throwaway praises, they just go up and are gone, they're useless. And so I would love God to do a work in us as a church and a community so that we can be a community that can take a rebuke, that will allow God to work through someone else to do some surgery on us. And you know the thing about surgery? They need to cut into you. They need to take something sharp and cut you open. And very often when they do that, it gets a bit messy. And it's at that point that you can roll off the table and run away and not have any of the surgery done and just get left with a mess, hating the doctor for what he's done. Or you can be, by God's grace, accept the wise, careful, meticulous, loving cuts of a friend so that God might be able to do surgery on you. That God might be able to remove that cancer in you that's stopping you from living fullness of life. I've got some people in my life who will do that. And it's a gracious gift of God. What we want to do starting next year, and you'll hear more and more about this, particularly in our annual meeting in November. You'll hear more about that later. Um, But you'll hear that we have plans to try and organise our church into smaller groups of two or three people that are committed to doing this are committed to saying to one another, in the safety and security of our friendship, we commit not to just be burning thorns every time we meet up. We refuse to burn any more thorns. We want some hard wood on that fire. We want to do some solid work of growing one another in godliness. So have in mind those small groups, have in mind some people that you might want to invite into your life to do this work. The, the, a good friend, a wise person will rebuke us in love. And it's better to, than to hear the song of fools. I want to encourage you to read the rest of that little passage there from verse 7 to 8. We're going to talk about patience being better than pride and verse 11 to 12, wisdom being better than wealth. We don't have time to do that this morning, but I just want to continually encourage you where we haven't been able to address the scriptures. And this morning, we've had a whole chapter and a half that we haven't been able to look at. Please allow this to be your structure that you work through, either individually or as a family. You hopefully be able to go home today to lunch or go to a friend's house and you'll be able to hear the kids talking about some of these themes that we've talked about this morning. We put a lot of work into knowing ahead of time what the scriptures say, what the big idea is, so that we can teach across all ages the same great truths from God's word. So please engage your children. Start building for yourself today, if you haven't already, a legacy that will outlive you. Solomon this morning in these verses has continually drawn us back to think about our death, to think about our legacy, to think about things that are more than just vanity, more than just fleeting, more than just temporal these things that will live on for eternity. So please, this week, address your honour, address your good name, address your good standing before God. Invest in wisdom. Invest in wisdom. 
And remember God's promise to us that anyone who asks for wisdom will receive it. This is not wisdom to know how to do well in the stock market. It's not wisdom to know how to take advantage of women. It's not wisdom to find out how to accumulate more things. It's wisdom for godliness. And I want to leave you with this challenge. Very often I hear, and I think this is a totally legitimate thing to struggle with, but I meet up with people who want to talk to me about something that's going on in their life, some big decision that they're going to make or some direction they want to take, and they want me to pray for them that they would have wisdom to know where to go. And I'm more than happy to do that. And I think that's a good and godly thing to do. And I do believe that the Spirit will guide us when we ask for His guidance. It might take a little time, it might take a lot, but when we persevere in prayer, God does show us. But here's what I know to be true, 100%. Is that though prayer is useful and though speaking to wise people for counsel is useful, every single time you open God's Word, God is apt to give you wisdom. God is ready to give you wisdom. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. Let me just get that up. Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, that's another way of saying rebuke, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a description of wisdom. And so let me encourage you this week, if you're not feeling wise, if you're not feeling equipped, if you don't know what to do, pick up God's word, read it and receive it, get together with other Christians and pray and ask for wisdom and trust in God's promise that he will give it to you just as he did for Solomon when we ask in faith. Why don't I do that for us now? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together in your word. I thank you for the richness of it. It really is just bottomless, and we never have enough time really to plumb the depths of it. But I thank you for what you've given us this morning, a little morsel to chew on. Lord God, I pray that this wouldn't be our only meal for this week, that we would feel starved by the end of it, but that every day we would eat, that we would feast, on your word and that we would trust that as we do, you would give us everything we need to be equipped for every good work, to be wise as believers living in your world for your glory. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.